Two reasons. Uh, number one, we've got, what are their names? Is it Rosenstein? Rosenstein and Ray. We have a hearing with those two guys in judiciary, and I don't need to miss that. And um, if you let the senator go first, um, I would never get a chance. Uh, the dominant question. That's not completely true. Sure. I, I, you're, you're trying to hide the fact that you're here at I am not another day. <laughs> I control the time, and I am not yielding right now. <laughs> I wish I could do that. It takes a lot longer to get your hair to look this bad than people would think. <laughs> Number one question that I think both of us get is, um, why'd you write a book and why'd you write a book about this? Um, the reason we wrote a book is we wanted to be able to tell folks that we have now uh, written and read the same number of books. So one of each. We were eating dinner upstairs and um, you know, we eat dinner almost every night we were in DC together and we were just sharing stories about our upbringing and, Senator Scott was telling me, he did grow up in a single-parent household, but, uh, but his grandfather, Mr. Arvis Ware, was in, the, was in the home as well, and Timmy was telling me that Mr. Ware would, at, at the breakfast table in Charleston, open up the Charleston Post and Courier uh, because he wanted his grandson to value education. He wanted his grandson to understand the importance of knowing what's going on in the world, current events. And so he would hold the Post and Courier open where everybody in the world, including God, could know he was, he was reading the newspaper <laughs> to impress upon his grandson the value of knowledge, the power of education. And as uh, lawyers who attempt time to time, I interrupted him and said, you know, that, I grew up the exact same way. We got that in common. My father was a physician, but he would do the same thing with the Spartanburg Herald Journal. He would open it up in the morning so my three sisters and I could could see that he was staying current. He was following what was happening in the world and he was reading everything he could get his hands on. So I interrupted Tim to tell him that. He said, you know, Trey, the difference is my grandfather could not read. He died at the age of 94, not being able to read. He faked it. He faked it because he wanted his family to go from picking cotton to pick in a seat in the United States House of Representatives. And they did it in one generation because he instilled in his grandson a desire and thirst and hunger for knowledge. And I said, Tim, you gotta tell that story. And he's got the one quality that I cannot stand in elected officials, which is humility. <laughs> he didn't want to write a book about himself. I hope you'll change your mind one day. I really do. I, I hope you will write a book about yourself. He said, let's do it together. And we figured, okay, what does the world need less of? Unity. I can't remember a time we were more unified than we are. <laughs> the notion that you could get expelled from a restaurant because of your political beliefs or who your employer is, the... I mean, this is a terrible time in our country's history. I, I don't remember it being more divisive. Now, Tim is an optimist, and he'll cite other time periods in history. One, <laughs> the, one in the 1860s, where we were also pretty divided. But, um, 
I got a I got a call yesterday, and I'm not going to call her name um, because we're in such a toxic political environment. It would actually hurt her for anyone to know that she called a Republican colleague, and she called. She's an incredibly progressive Democrat who said, "I want you to tell me." your thoughts on the resolution that we're going to be voting on tomorrow, because I may vote for it. And I got a note, Harry Langston put a note on my desk last night from a very progressive Democrat. He said, thank you for breakfast and for sharing your thoughts with me. It happens way more than the world knows it happens, but we're not in an environment where we can talk about it. So we wanted to write a book, don't surrender your deeply held convictions, you're welcome to believe whatever it is you want to believe, but do so with civility and grace. And to finish with the words of Benjamin Franklin, never surrender the remote possibility that you may be wrong. So that's why we wrote what we wrote about. Um, I'm glad that it was successful, it was more successful, I think, than any one of us planned, which I think is illustrative of the fact that there is a hunger for it, and you don't have to write kiss-and-tell political books where you divulge secret conversations and you criticize. The only two people made fun of in our book are the two people sitting in front of you. So it's possible to do it, and it's possible for that to resonate with our fellow citizens. So that's why we did it, and with your encouragement, we can get him to write the book that I think our country desperately needs, which is how to be optimistic, kind, decent, civil, and still be a conservative, and I can't think of anybody better uh, to number one, run the president, number two, to write a book on those topics than you. Let me tell you why I think we wrote the book. That was all new information. Everything going on, it's good to show up so you'll know what's going on. We, we, when we were uh, elected together to Congress in 2010, we did not know each other at all. And think back to who we are as South Carolinians. We come from a state where when we were kids, we would not have been able to play together. We would have been able to go to the same restaurant together, or stay at the same hotel, or even drink from the same watermelon. Uh, we come from a state that is rich, has a rich history from racial perspective. But fast forward to our time of Congress. So we're having dinner consistently the, the four horsemen, myself, Mick Mulvaney, Jeff Tuck, and Trey Gowdy. And as time would have it, it it started to become only two of us. And then the two of us became better and better acquainted. And there's a scripture, Proverbs 27, 17, is iron sharpens iron, so one person does the other. I was blessed with a very sharp knife. You guys, you guys can see that he's a pretty sharp knife. Not necessarily a good hairdresser, but definitely <laughs> a very sharp knife in the drawer. And I did not know what the good Lord was doing over the time that he was doing it, because this started in 2011, and by 2015, we were tight as ticks, two peas in a pod, really having a strong, healthy, vibrant friendship. In this town, having friends is a rarity, particularly as members. We don't necessarily have a lot of friends. We, have, we are friendly, but we are not necessarily friends. Uh, I did not know how much I would need a friend until uh, June of 2015 when the Mother Emanuel church shooting happened. Uh, a guy, Dylan Ruth, walked into an African-American church in order to start a race war uh, in the place where the Civil War started. And 
I remember calling uh, this white guy from South Carolina after a white guy decided to start a race war at a black church. And it was that night of the, of the murder. And I thought to myself, just a few weeks later, not at the time, how far we've come as a nation, how far we've come as a state, when the first person African-American calls after a racially motivated shooting in a state with such a provocative history on race is this guy. And it started to, to, to show me how, how much can be done if we're just willing to break bread together. If we're willing to spend quality time getting to know the person, not as a white person or a black person, not as a, a Jew or a Gentile, not as a straight or gay, not as a rich or poor, but just simply as an individual. We started to see, at least I started to see the incredible value of coming together with people who you may not have much in common. Now, we're both Republicans. We're both from South Carolina, but we have real differences on some of the political issues that you would think that we were united on. I'm a, his, his wife is a public school teacher. I'm a strong supporter of any educational <clears throat> opportunity that leads someone to a better education, whether it's public, private, charter, online, it doesn't matter to me. Law enforcement experiences, very different experiences. He's a prosecutor. I'm an African-American who's been stopped seven times as an elected official by law enforcement, including just a couple of weeks trying to get into the Senate, uh, not being allowed to go in with, with, my, with my pen on. So, our experiences are just so different at times, and yet we don't run to the differences. We first build the rapport and the credibility that allows us to address the problems. Uh, that's why I thought we wrote the book. But now I realize we wrote the book for another reason. <laughs> I didn't know you've been stopped that many times. What have you been doing? Oh. <laughs> you surely you weren't stopped because you were driving while you were black. <laughs> it wasn't because I was white. <laughs> 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 who knows? Who knows? I was speeding a couple times. Right? <laughs> I stopped nine times. I just took out the two out of speed. <laughs> <laughs> no, that is an example of someone else, someone that you care about's life experiencing, life experience influencing your own perspective. Because I was, I still am, I'm pro-law enforcement. Uh, you would expect a prosecutor to do that. But when someone you care about has been stopped more times in a year than you've been stopped in your life, and I don't wear a pen, and no one stops me walking into the house, and he does wear a pen, and he's one of one. He is the only Republican senator of color. And I am one of 6,000 middle-aged white guys in the House of Representatives who do have to stop and think, um, what have I missed? What am I missing? And there's no one better. I mean, come on, I have this saying, it is hard to hate something that you know. It is really hard to hate something that you interact with on a regular basis. Um, so thank you for changing, not just on law enforcement, but even from a faith perspective. He's an optimist. Uh, 
I don't have that high of a view of mankind. Um, <laughs> <laughs> rarely disappointed. <laughs> but you don't have to be, you know, when we did our media tour, you know, some of our friends on the left said, you know, so white, you're both Republicans, you're both in South Carolina. And actually, we're happy that a white guy and a black guy from South Carolina can write a book together and people think it's boring and not newsworthy. That, that shows that we have made progress in our state. Um, we do have differences. We just, um, I have learned to love and appreciate our differences, in some instances, even more than our similarities. I don't learn from people that agree with me on everything. I learn from people that have a different experience. So with that, I hope we've timed it where we don't have to take any questions. Yeah. Uh, John Collingwood, uh, and Mr. Chairman, you have time for one question. Mr. Collingwood, you did such a great job. You had the first question. If I could go back just for a second to your uh, opportunity tour. You know, in the, in the country, we're experiencing historically low unemployment rates, yet we seem to have a stubborn problem for a lot of Americans that can't seem to go away. So what's your sense on why that is, and what can we in the private sector do to help that out? Yeah, we certainly have had an uneven recovery from this uh, amazingly hot economy. Unemployment rate 3.8%, 223,000 jobs out of last month, a million jobs out of since we passed the tax reform bill. The truth of the matter is that there are 50 million Americans still living in poverty, still living in distressed communities because the opportunities have not descended upon those locations. Too often we ask people to leave their neighborhoods, leave their communities, and come to where the opportunities are. Unfortunately, there are a lot of hurdles, including transportation, to getting there. And so the opportunity zones that was embedded in the tax cuts bill provides an incentive, the deferral of your capital gains tax for 10 years for that capital to then, instead of skipping those distressed communities, stop and take a second look to see if with a 23% incentive, is it worth a second look? What we found is the answer is not just yes, it's emphatically yes. We have investors all over the country now looking in their own backyards for ways to invest in some of the most distressed communities in the country. Now, Trey has to leave in a minute. I'll be here for five minutes afterwards, so if someone has a question about why he should be the next Supreme Court uh, nominee. <laughs> <laughs> in which or, country? <laughs> Andy. Yeah, so um, there's been a little talk about trade um, recently. Um, how? You're from South Carolina. There's a lot of uh, foreign investment in the state. What's your? How do you talk about it? Given how hard it is to confront the president or disagree with them, how are you handling things like trade, which impacts the state? Such a great way. You want me to answer that question? Okay. Uh, it's not a legal question. I want you to answer. <laughs> <laughs> so South Carolina has uh, uh, has transformed on the trade issue as well. As you alluded to, we, we have about $2.3 trillion of goods that reach from the South Carolina Ports Authority. We have 500,000 jobs connected to it. We have Newport Steel and BMW Volvo on there. So you're on two sides of the coin. So it's split, it cuts both ways. And we have, we're now the number one higher manufacturing state in the country and perhaps one of the best locations in the world. All that requires a lot of steel. So I think the way that you do it is you do it cautiously. I think uh, I've been invited to the White House to have a conversation about the city's legislation with a 
four other senators and the, the leader of the House, Kevin McCarthy. And we spent about 30 minutes on Zipius, and we spent about an hour on trade. And I presented my concerns because there were unintended consequences, even when you have BMW in your backyard producing more BMWs in America than they do at any other location on Earth, involved bringing its first North American site to South Carolina and will likely fall uh, in the same direction as BMW and Mercedes, 1,500 jobs in South Carolina doing assembly work for their Sprinter vans. So uh, talking about the headwinds created by the trade conversation is a real conversation that I've had with the President. I won't say very similar to my conversation with Matt Charlottesville. We don't always come to the same conclusion. But it is important to have that conversation. Uh, and then give them a little room to negotiate, because at the end of the day, if you, if you don't, then what you only do is you only stoke the embers, and that doesn't turn out well for, for anybody. But you have the responsibility of being clear, being concise, and doing a little bit of compassion. I'm going to go provide oversight over the Department of Justice and the FBI. Uh, enjoy him. Um, ask him some tough questions, uh, as I believe. Um, and keep in mind he's single, so if you got any money, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you for your I'm now prepared to ask, answer any of the FBI questions you might have. <laughs> I know nothing about what I'm talking about. Okay, I'm going to take his place. Are there folks? Uh, yes, I am. Great, <laughs> 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 Senator, I'm not sure I have a question, but I wanted to congratulate you on Enterprise Health's legislation. I, I think 10 years from now, we're going to look back, and I think it will turn out to be the most significant provision in tax reform. We're working with Treasury on the regs, and or the guidance is going to come out. I think they're, it's going to, from what we think, we hope, it's going to be very broad, which would be good. Yes. Um, I think there's going to be over 8,500 zones, and we were discussing with my colleague here. And it wasn't until I've been telling everybody about this thing, and it wasn't until last week, all of a sudden my emails and calls started exploding, saying, "Oh, what is this?" You know, and all this. But the other thing is, just to put this in your, so I, I'd encourage you to get out and talk about it a lot more, because, and I'm trying to tell that to every member and right. the Republicans to take credit for it. But the other thing is, is that you layer into the zones, all sorts of other programs in addition Absolutely. to those tax benefits, low-income housing tax credits, yes. CPG, CDFI, all that. And then the FCC's broadband initiative to bring the small cell, bring broadband to rural areas. Absolutely. That's going to be huge. So, You're anyway. exactly right. No, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a, I, I like your pitch. <laughs> it was a strike, and I, I hope I hit the ball because it's so important for us to recognize the incredible opportunity that's been presented to us through the, through the tax cuts uh, plan. I, I tucked it in there so no one would see it, so it get done. Because we had a lot of conversations about it before it was passed. It, would, it, it probably would have created too, too many uh, hurdles to overcome, so I did my best to make sure that uh, the, the members of the finance committee understood and appreciated the absolute opportunity that it presents. It really was designed around the Jack Kemp model of of an energetic approach to solving problems in places where too few of us spend enough time to understand what the problem is. And so the 
opportunity zones were designed very much after the enterprise zones. The biggest difference is the enterprise zones really focused on how to get the government more involved in those areas, but in fact, the real miracle, the real magic happens in the private sector. So the question is, can we find a way to bring the private sector there? And you're right, 85, over 8,000 opportunity zones around the country. Every single state chose 25% of their new market tax credit uh, areas to be designated as opportunity zones. And a classic example in North Charleston, my hometown, where I kicked off the opportunity tour, is a project called Metanoia, a nonprofit that's come into where my grandfather passed away in his little neighborhood, where I lived about a half a mile from for growing up. And they bought a school, an old school, and they're going to turn it into an incubator for businesses. They're going to have arts there. It's, it's going to be a fabulous unit. But what they've done is they've combined that low income tax credit along with the opportunity zones to make this a real opportunity. So it's going to be exciting to see how many folks around the country will do something in their own backyards. And the neat thing is that billionaires in Houston are talking about how can I create charter schools, workforce development initiatives, housing projects in their backyards because they know the best. Venture capital has done the exact opposite. VCs, what you'll find is that Three states get about half of the money. This gives every state a chance to get a, a little skin in the game. This is along those same lines. Has your staff or any outside group that you've worked with put together sort of a document explaining this? Because this is, as a trade association, love to push this out sure. to you know the business folks and the companies and say, you know, as you're planning and doing your strategic planning, take a look at this. Michelle will be happy to give you a card and we'll get you in touch with Yeah, we have plenty of PowerPoints, fact sheets, and everything we can send <laughs> yeah. over to you. And then there's, a, there's a group started by Sean Parker, the guy that was the first president of Facebook. And he was in Charleston on you know, Monday to do an article in Forbes magazine on the Opportunity Zone Wall Street Journals, and yesterday doing an article Atlantic, <coughs> yesterday doing an article as well. So what we're seeing is now the interest is from Forbes, Forbes last I, week. Forbes last week. I want to beat the press. I'm yes. going to get it to him before Excellent. they read it. <laughs> 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 we can help you out there too. So you can help me, but Sean yeah, Parker. Email me today. Okay, well, Sean Parker leads a group called the EIG. They have a model that they're using along with Steve Case Bale, Elf Base, from the Dallas Base. Anyways, the rest of the guys like, what's wrong with his throat? <laughs> so they're working together on that, but they have a great uh, template that you can follow. Yeah, go ahead, Scott. We see Mark Pretty right there. Hey, Mark. The tax guru himself. He's leaving now that he got it done. He's like, there's nothing else to do once you get tax reform done. Wait, wait. Thank you for your service. Senator uh, Scott Sam Michelle, I, I want to say your story has touched a lot of people. I mean, I remember hearing you when you came to the house, and I remember you the day you. I remember we were at an event at the Greenbrier. It was a senatorial committee. You drove practically overnight in your own car by yourself to get there to speak to people. You'd just been elected, I think, in a special, yep. and you told that story at of all places the Greenbrier, which was probably one of the last places of that kind of separation in America where it would have been unthinkable that a man of color could have been elected to the United States Senate from South Carolina. And I, you had me in tears the day you talked. Now, 
I thought when I heard you, I said, this is somebody who needs to be on a national stage. Mr. Gowdy just mentioned your name as a possible presidential contender. Have you given thought? And when, how would you even begin to think about if you wanted to go that way in your career? Yeah. What do you do next? Well, I've been meeting with my homeowner association this evening. <laughs> Most of my streets seem to be the least likely supporters of that presidency. So, can't get your neighbors to vote for you. There's some issues that you probably have to overcome. I'm not home enough, and I'll cut my grass off enough, and I'll move my trash. So, we're working on it without any questions. Next question. Senator, <laughs> Senator, give us a little uh, snapshot of what is the mood in the Senate right now, you know, not only politically, with 51 uh, Republicans, are we going to pick up some more? Do you feel confident? And now with Justice Kennedy leaving, is that going to be divisive in terms of the separation of Democrats and Republicans even more? Are you going to be here the entire month of August? <laughs> Nothing <laughs> <laughs> good happens in DC in August. <laughs> I'm kind of joking, <laughs> just kind of. So I, I, I think we should stay here as long as we get more things accomplished. So whatever we could do in August, whenever we can get that amount of work plus 50% done, then we should go home. I'm a free market capitalist, so what that means is I don't determine my value based on how long I do something. I think of my value and how much I get accomplished in this small period of time. We're looking at it the exact opposite way from a free market perspective. We, we were suggesting that if we spend enough time, we'll get enough accomplished. And if that happens, then we better do from a free market perspective, not get enough accomplished, get three, four, five times as much accomplished. If that is what we're going to do in August, it will be a very valuable use of our time, and I hope we stay here the entire month. But I want to get more personal decisions made as soon as possible. My staff would like me to leave yesterday, but there's nothing until we get much time. But if all we do is what we were going to do that we could have done in July and do that in August, then that would have been a failure of time. On probably the most important issue is how does Justice Kennedy's announcement change the terrain for the fall? Substantially. I'm a guy that believes that nothing matters in politics until after August. If you're trying to figure out what the polls say today, put the polls down, smoke a cigar, have a drink, I do neither. But literally nothing matters until September. And then it doesn't matter really until the end of September. And then the polls are coming out in October, and that's when you should start paying attention to the midterms. This is a game-changing experience that has just reset that entire calculation for the rest of this year. Justice Kennedy's retirement will cause eight Senate Democrats to look at their future and say, is it worth it to lose my race to oppose a nominee that will become, will be confirmed anyways. So this is a brand new set of problems and challenges. If Heidi Heitkamp was concerned before, who is a lovely person, I like her a lot. If she was concerned before, last night was the night that she probably didn't sleep much. Uh, if you think about McCaskill, Missouri, whew. Uh, think, think about Manchin in West Virginia. 
voting against whomever the nominee is, holding the nominee up even, from a 37-point deficit, the president won by 37 points. As popular as Manchin is, with all the, the, the negativity that the president and the vice president <laughs> showered in West Virginia on Manchin, this is the brand spank new problem that is bigger than everything else that they face. For us, we just think Harry Reid. Because the truth of the matter is, even if you watched CNN last night, and I'm doing Van Jones' show in a few minutes, we're going to record an hour. And that I, was his I, idea. I, 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 yeah. <laughs> 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 I'm going to is there another day we can record this? Not today. <laughs> We're going to hear so much uh, hyperbole around what this means for all kinds of rights. But the truth of the matter is, this, this is a resetting of the table that if we're smart, I think McConnell is as cunning as anyone in that position. It will take us until September, late September, early October to get this done. And voters will see <coughs> a contrast between our party's uh, ability to get it done and the Democrats' party, Democrats' ability to stop it from being done. But what that means is that we have a chance to pick up three to five seats if we play this right, uh, and they have to know that. Chuck Schumer has to know. And the more, the more vitriol they throw towards this nominee, whoever it is, the more imperiled those red state Democrats become. It's an interesting chess game. I can't imagine a more fun time <laughs> to, to not be on the ballot. <laughs> this is my first time since 2010 not being on a ballot in, a, in, a, in an election. So this is like an exciting time. <laughs> Everybody eat each other up. Cool. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Here we go. Um, if we pivot to healthcare for a moment, to the committees you serve on, you know, have released a lot of uh, bills or a package on opioids. Last week, the House had a big vote, um, both on their package as well as one particular bill to amend 42 CFR Part 2. It's um, aligning substance abuse treatment information uh, with HIPAA for patients. So I'm just wondering um, kind of what you envision as timing to bring the Senate and House work together. Will it be a conference? Um, will you send over your legislation to the House? Kind of what that looks like? And then what would your recommendation be? Um, the 42 CFR Part 2 that I mentioned had a huge House vote. 357 members uh, were voted for it. Um, but it wasn't in the House package. So kind of what would your advice be to make sure that's not lost when all of the work comes together? First, we need to figure out what 42 RF is. Have you talked to my, my uh, healthcare expert on, on that issue? I, I would say that there are a couple of things that we can expect. Number one, finally, we're taking the opioid and drug addiction crisis seriously. The president had before the last uh, spending vehicle, we had about $56,000. Once the president delivered it as an emergency, now we have about $3.3 billion that was included in the last spending bill, number one, two. Number three, I would say that the coordination between the two bodies is quite difficult. Uh, our approach on the health committee is markedly different than the House folks over there. Uh, our ranking member on it is uh, fierce, challenging, disruptive, and 
hard to make progress. So I would not expect us to send anything over there. I would expect for us to entertain as we did with the 21st Century Cures, their package, whittle it down to get a, a, the, the majority that we need to move something forward and then have a much smaller package. I'm not sure about the 42. Mm -hmm. Sounded like a football play to me. That was an audible. <laughs> Red 42 CF. Red 42 CF. I think it, it's two parts of the record. So. It doesn't matter what it is, but. Right. <laughs> I'm not going to know what you tell me. Tell me. Okay. I can understand the fact that, I mean, listen, I, I know that 1996 it became into being and it, it created some disruptions and challenges of us being able to align all the information so that people yeah. understand and appreciate who's getting what from where. Mm -hmm. So I have a peripheral knowledge. We go in three, four, five, six levels deeper. I'm not yeah, happy to come by and talk. That'd be great. <laughs> I, made a, I, made a, I made a decision when I ran for office not to pretend that you know something you don't know. I just don't know. So. Senator, um, Michelle just gave me the Hell for yeah. you because you have this interview that she said you accepted and she wasn't really crazy about it. <laughs> uh, but her last day is today on my staff, so I can't. Oh, is that right? She has decided to go work for CBS. She's going to be. He should have done CBS. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. Julie Wilkie, a member of our staff here, her sister works down there. So this is yeah, true. Yeah. Senator, you know, as always, I mean, it's been a year since you've been with us. God, it, it's just, you are such a breath of fresh light and, and, and fresh air. Fresh light? But we 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 thank you very much. I I will deliver your wonderful uh, thank you gift from us. Thanks, the sir. book Team Arrivals, autographed of course by Doris Kearns Goodwin, uh, this afternoon to your office since you're going to this interview. With our thanks, don't be a stranger. You are always welcome. Have a great Fourth of July. I hope August is not going to be here too soon for you, and I hope you don't have to stay here the entire month. Thank you all very much. Good seeing y'all. Thank you. Congratulations! Wow! This is the concert you're working for. Yeah. Um, the DC Bureau.